In preparation for today's podcast, I performed an internet search by inputting the words patient violence. In about a half a second, the return was just under a quarter of a billion results. So out of curiosity, I also put in the search bar something that we've been hearing a lot about in the news, airline passenger violence. I also got a brisk return, but only 4.6 million results. Of course, I do realize that the counts of internet search results are not really an indicator of the importance or even the prevalence of something. But I also learned something else from that internet search. For the airline passenger violence search, the first page and actually the first several pages were crowded with listings from news sources, USA Today, NBC News, many magazines. But for the patient violence, not a single news source listed in the first three pages. They were all healthcare resources. So apparently, violence in healthcare, very prevalent, but not that newsworthy for most people. Kind of disappointing. I think we can all agree that violence in many workplaces has been increasing and that it's bad for everyone. But violence in the healthcare environment has been steadily increasing for over a decade, and it's become essentially a silent epidemic. The statistics are really worrisome. Healthcare workers are five times more likely to experience violence in the workplace than in any other line of work in the United States. Most nurses and physicians will tell you if polled or in studies that they have experienced violence in the workplace in the last year. The statistics are bad, but the impact on workers, their families, and ultimately patient care is even more worrisome. This is one of a three-part series of podcasts discussing violence in the healthcare workplace. And today we're gonna to talk with a Mayo Clinic expert who's been working with staff and system designs to help reduce the risks brought on by violence to staff and patients. Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focusing on healthcare quality. This podcast aims to help you take some of those first steps towards understanding and improving quality challenges in your organization. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Dr. Tim Morgenthaler, a professor of medicine here at Mayo Clinic and the vice chair for quality at Mayo Clinic. Co-hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry? Welcome everyone. I'm Sherry Nemec, consultation and relationship manager for quality at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Morgenthaler, the statistics that you shared are staggering, but we know in healthcare that they're very real. And today we have a wonderful opportunity to learn more about how Mayo is using clinical systems to help with workplace violence, both prevention and mitigation. You're right. And it's been really exciting to watch this develop while at the same time kind of disappointing that we need all this work. But right. I'm so pleased today that Elise Hutchinson, a nurse and performance improvement advisor, can join us. Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Can you just share with our listeners a little bit about yourself? You know, what's your current position? What was your journey to kind of get here at Mayo Clinic? We want to know. Yeah, absolutely. I am a clinical nurse specialist by trade, but I am a performance improvement advisor for our hospital safety pillar right now. I've been in that role for about a year and a half, and that was due to all of the workplace violence work I did as a clinical nurse specialist here at Mayo. I've been a nurse for about 11 years and have been with Mayo for about six of those. I came to Mayo as a clinical nurse specialist on a DOM 5D, which is at that time was our medical unit that was being uh, 
utilized as our workplace violence unit. It was being specifically modified and had our staff had higher training in engaging with violent patients as well as our there was a constant security guard on that unit. I also was able to, in that time, be the ambulatory CNS for our infectious disease area, and they happened to have an incident that was called into the unit, and it, it was a very scary experience. So, that, so me just happening to be in these two worlds at the same time really gave me the opportunity to see violence in both of these realms and see how we're responding to them in these different very different, but very similar areas within the health system and how to move forward and really create solutions in both of these spaces. That's how it so often goes with people that I meet is, you know, what they're doing now, it pretty rarely is what they were thinking 15, 20 years ago they were going to be doing. And yet there's so much exciting work to do. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, you know, how did you first get interested in this particular problem Maybe part of what you shared with us is already it, but you know, how did you begin to envision how you were going to work in this space? And so I was just kind of happened to be thrown into that, right? When you staff bring you a problem and you just kind of go, all right, how are we going to fix this? And so really looking at how do we bring the staff together and help them understand working through these processes. So staff were like, I don't know how to respond to violence in the ambulatory setting, right? So how I was able to do that was my inpatient unit, they had an established practice. There's a process here. We have the behavior safety plan or also called the BSP. It's a tool that we use to communicate triggers, calming mechanisms, staff interventions. This is the plan to engage safely with a patient on how to really uh, mitigate their behaviors. And so that inpatient plan had been established before I came in, but then seeing that ambulatory side and them needing a solution, that was to say, all right, we have an inpatient solution. Now let's look at our ambulatory side. What is similar? What is different? How can we merge these two together? Because then we also know, and I'm getting excited here, but (laughs) we also know that these patients that are doing these pieces they're the same behaviors, no matter the setting that they're in. And so we need a tool that communicates that. And that's really how I got involved with this project is taking these two realms together and saying, how do we communicate across all of these different units, clinic settings, procedural areas, that this is a thing that could happen. This is a behavior you could encounter with this person. And this is how you engage safely with them to help them proactively then protect themselves and that patient from escalating violence. So we know that healthcare is very complex in the care delivery system. And I would imagine that you needed a number of people to come together to be able to create these tools for both inpatient existed and outpatient. So who did you involve as you started to organize this work? So as we noted that this lack of, we needed this communication tool, we had to get buy-in from both our inpatient ambulatory colleagues and our inpatient setting already had a workplace violence complex behavior committee that was created. And so we showed them the need. That committee had representation from OC Health, facilities, security, nursing, providers from ED, psych, inpatient. You need all these people to come together to say, yes, this is a piece. But then we were also took that to the ambulatory colleagues to say, since they didn't have the same type of group, we went to their practice 
proponents to say, this is a problem and we need to, your help to and support to bring this to your area so that we can create solutions here. Yes. So this is truly a, everybody on board. <laughs> you know, Elise, I, I just want to paint this out and please correct me if I don't have it, but some of the early work that you know we started doing was really because we found more and more violent patients were coming to the ED or going into our psychiatry units. So, and oh, by the way, some of them would come to our medical or surgical floors. And we had some very unpleasant experiences and injuries. And so on the inpatient side, we did start to put together ways to respond to that, that would be safe for the patients, safer for the staff and so forth. But you're absolutely right now that you bring this up because, okay, now that patient gets better, with whatever their medical or surgical problem was, they're dismissed, and they're going to be heading out to the outpatient clinic for a follow-up visit. And so what you're saying is those individuals sometimes, you know, have the same kind of behaviors or threatening demeanors, shall we say, when they get to the outpatient areas. And we really hadn't been doing the work to develop programs or to let them know, hey, this individual who's coming, you might want to be on the lookout for this kind of behavior. Am I kind of getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. And and even that communication from unit to unit, right? How frustrating is it that every time a person is admitted to your unit, you have to relearn everything about this person. How do they take their meds? How do you engage with them? How do they like to be called? And all of this information is regathered every time they come newly into your walls, your clinic. But this behavior safety plan or BSP is a tool that follows them across the care continuum so that now staff can see How do I engage with them? What don't I say to make sure that they don't get triggered by what we're going in here? Does me getting too close to them escalate their behaviors? And on top of that, it just helps you, especially for our autistic and uh, dementia patients, because those are consistent pieces that will likely be there as they come into our clinic and hospital setting walls. And so if we're able to better engage with them from the beginning, then we are lessening the fear that they have, the fear that the staff has of the, as they become escalated and frightened. And so we're really able to engage everywhere. You know, it, it really does sound more of a two-way street because, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking how wonderful that is. You know, it's kind of like some people have a certain name that they like to be called. And if, if every time they go into a medical center, they get the wrong name or they can't say your name right, it, it gets a bit frustrating. And this is even, you know, that on steroids, because as I'm hearing you talk, you know, yeah, there might be certain behaviors that really would, the patient would feel better about the experience. Also, if we don't do something unwittingly, not on purpose, but unwittingly that kind of makes them fearful. As you started that work, it sounds like, gee, this is a great idea. What challenges and interdependencies and obstacles did you find as you started that work? So some of the challenges, especially originally, were through the system component of it is how do we track this and how do we make this not a manual process to where it is now a burden of somebody else to make to monitor that flag make sure it's appropriate do all those pieces to that so a lot of our work has been around previous state and current state is how do we create a severity classification scale that helps staff be able to We're able to track the incident that has happened, but then we're not then on the back end having to do all this manual components to this plan. We're able to leave that plan on due to whatever verbal assault, physical assault, you will have this plan on for one year, five years, whatever the weight of that incident is. And so that plan then stays. And so you're taking that burden off of the staff. 
creating that has been a very interesting process. And what do we use as our severity classification components? Some other pieces, uh, challenges, because it's never easy, right? No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but really uh, the unique workflows of each of those areas and really looking at ED, inpatient ambulatory, they all have very different abilities in each of those settings on how to manage those patients. Inpatient has a lot more ability to implement consequences, right? If that patient can understand a consequence that is implemented, we can limit their access to electronics, TV, things like that. But in the outpatient setting or clinic setting, you don't have that capability. It's more of a, we're going to ask you to leave or we could terminate care. Those are things where the interventions can get more complicated. And then you also have in the ED set, ED inpatient settings, the rules of EMTALA. So no matter even if that person is violent, if they are in that outpatient setting and they've been terminated, we still have to take that patient even with their bad behaviors, because we have to, because of EMTALA and really care for them and keep them until we have a safe discharge plan for them. And that can be a really frustrating component for staff because they've physically assaulted us. Why are we allowing them to be admitted? But we have to, they deserve good care. Boy, I can see that that would be a lot of work to come up with consistency guidelines for what plan seems appropriate for the patient. But I want to go back for a second to the systemness of this. So there's the, okay, let's think about what seems right. What are the system parts of this, for example, so that when a patient comes back to the emergency room, I kind of already know that, or when they are coming into my outpatient clinic, what are the system components here that had to be built? Absolutely. And that is a big component. And that was one of the things we found to be a problem is that this plan is, it's an FYI flag within our electronic health record. And so people need to kind of seek this information out and go to that care plan. What it does is when you use this behavior safety plan and you are going through the reasons, why do we need this? You are essentially validating. This is the thing that happened to me. These are the observed behaviors. These are the subjective statements that the patient made. These are their triggers. And then this is why we need to implement this BSP because of all of these pieces. And now, especially uh, with joint commission saying we need to have the way to address those behaviors. We just can't say that somebody's violent without having a response plan to that. How do we mitigate those behaviors? And so what the, the FYI flag allows you to say, here are the staff interventions and here are the limit setting consequences that could potentially be used with those pieces. And then within that is all of those interventions that you can utilize with that patient. Some group of individuals with guidelines that you all have been working on, they're, you know, they're devising a plan. But you know, in my clinic here, we're seeing about 160 patients a day. How do I know whether the next patient has one of these plans or not? Great question. The behavior safety plan, you use that plan. And from that, that's where we can activate that FYI flag. And what that'll do, we'll utilize either a violent patient alert or a behavior alert. So that can tell you for that more, those resource intense, challenging patients that you need to help staff understand how to engage with, that'll activate a background color change in the electronic health record so I, that I you're see. able so, to visualize it. So when they check in, they arrive or, or something, then, then it's, something's going to look different to me so that I'm going to be aware of it. it that's a big system deal. How did you make that happen? We petitioned for real estate real hard. 
I bet. <laughs> that is really where it came down to is really advocating for to say that this is an important piece. People need to know that this happens. And um, we also know that outside of the electronic health record, we can add indicators to the patient list so that you can see that this is there without having to enter the patient record. But we also need to remember that not all areas utilize the same system. Not everybody uses the electronic health record, like our EVS staff, our security staff, I'm sorry, EVS, I meant environmental services, mm -hmm. as well as our security staff. They don't know what we don't tell them. And so we utilize a door card as well outside of patient rooms to make sure that they're aware that there's a potential for uh, challenging behavior in there. So kind of a visual cue that, you know, if uh, someone was going to go in and deliver a dietary tray or something, that they go, oh, wait, okay, I better find out what the story is here. Yeah, because not everybody uh, looks at the patient chart before they enter the room. So I imagine that in addition to challenges, because this was an, an enormous amount of work, obviously, any surprises along the way that you had, and maybe positive ones? Actually, it was very interesting. So when we first initiated the changes and brought everything together, we really thought that it would be very much a very individualized, this is how you were... Each person would have a unique response and how to mitigate those pieces. And what we found it is not, it is very standard. How do you respond to somebody? Outpatient has very much standard responses. Room them next to the nurse's station for the clinic setting if you need people to respond or room them down the hallway. Don't leave them in the lobby. They're very call security on site. Those are very standard interventions that people utilize with patients and inpatient setting is very the same. That was a really a surprise. We thought it would be very individualized, but responding to these behaviors and, and having a very standard response to them helps staff then know how to respond to those pieces. What does the system look like now? I mean, what is the current status of, of all this work? Hopefully, beginning of quarter three, we will have a new shiny looking system. <laughs> so what we've done is really modify our current state. This next iteration that we're doing is really helping staff understand this is what you can do. We're going to categorize things. What is the behavior you are seeing here? And now these are the interventions we would recommend to intervene with that behavior. Really helping them understand as well, what is violence? What are the things you're experiencing? These behaviors that you're seeing that is violence when you have somebody verbally assaulting you constantly, mm. and we need to acknowledge it as such. So it sounds like you built a lot and you've learned a lot, and now you're building version 1.1 or 1.2 or something using the lessons learned and, and putting those into play. Mm -hmm. It's really helping staff see what their interventions are. It is very much a care plan, but it's a high-level care plan because you are trying to create a and validate how to respond to behaviors. And then you do need that nurse and provider buy-in with this to say, because you could be potentially using consequences for that person if they're able to understand. We don't use that for our dementia or our autistic patients that can't understand the consequences, but it's so valuable to have the staff interventions in those interactions. So at least I know Mayo Clinic has made a significant investments in this work, not only to keep our staff safe, but to keep our patients safe and to promote more positive experiences for everyone. I'm wondering if you have a story or something that you can share around that impact to either a patient or a staff member, 
something that can help share a little bit about the positive impact of this work? My favorite one was one of the featured stories that we did last year for our workplace violence awareness campaign in April. And I collaborated with one of our ambulatory nurse colleagues. They were having some issues with one of their autistic patients. Every time they came into the clinic setting, they were escalating, physically hurting staff, causing large disruptions to the clinic flows calling security, having to have them removed, all these pieces. And so they engaged me to help create a behavior safety plan. And with that, what we were able to do was engage the group home uh, with with that works with the patient and found out that he loves to play the guitar and he loves to get a, a treat after and go to McDonald's for a ice cream cone. And so what we were able to do is work with them and and the staff to now say, when he comes in, we need to have that awareness. He needs to be roomed right away and we need to communicate with him. If you're able to make it through this clinic appointment without hurting anybody, you're going to get some sheet music and then you're going to be able to go get a treat after this stay. And oh my gosh, when the staff member was the person to give him that sheet music versus the group home person that's then giving that positive memory there and so that clinic setting has now not had any issues with this patient that they were potentially going to terminate but now can engage with in a safe way because they know how to engage with them in all of these settings now not just in that primary clinic setting they've taken it everywhere and he has not escalated and that's wonderful and wonderful for him too, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Right. To yeah. be in a place where he feels cared for. And that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I love that, that story. Thank you yeah. so much. Wow. So many positive things here. And in case I don't get a chance before the end of our podcast here, I just want to thank you because, you know, I actually have a relative who came into Mayo Clinic and at the time they were in a psychiatric crisis and they really benefited from some of the things that you're talking about. So I, you know, again, Sherry, like you were just saying, yeah, you know, good for the family, good for the patient, good for the staff. So, you know, it's, it's just so win, win, win. You bet. I'm just curious, what worries or concerns do you have about this program and process? What things are kind of keeping you up late at night sometimes? Or do you go home and say, gee, I wish we could do more for whatever? There's a lot there. (laughs) 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 But what some of the pieces here are, we know that only 30 to 40% of incidences are actually reported and actually talked about. And when you have that incident report within that incident report, how many instances of violence and, and verbal assault, physical assault are within that piece? We need to create environments where staff feel empowered to set limits with patients if they are being inappropriate and give them that ability to engage in that way because there is a lot of fear now around these pieces and and just to tack on with fear we have the cures act which staff don't feel comfortable directly quoting what a patient is saying to them and it's very concerning that they don't want to reflect that patient back to themselves when they are being inappropriate and they don't want to put it in the record because they fear retaliation from that patient Mm. or that family member who's reading those notes immediately as they're accessed. And people are very easy to find for the Google search. And so there is a lot of psychological fear surrounding addressing violence in general, because how are we supported to address that with the patients and then 
but you, we still have to reflect that back to them. And so really encouraging limit setting to speak up when things are inappropriate is, I think, so important and leadership supporting that as well. There's a lot of work yet to be done in this space, for sure. You know, I wonder if you would have one tip or recommendation for an organization that maybe is early on in this work or is starting to try to figure out how clinical systems can help support prevention or mitigation of violence in the workplace. What might be that recommendation or that tip? So it's creating buy-in with their leadership getting the leadership support to start those processes and working with your informatics teams to find the best ways to garner awareness for staff members as they're engaging with the patients. Whether or not you create a behavior safety plan or just an FYI flag of that violence, staff need to know not just that that patient had a history of violence before, they need to know how to respond to that. So as you're working with those, working with your informatics team to find a way to have that plan somewhere where staff can access it. And not just the nursing staff, provider staff, it's that pharmacy tech that's filling those prescriptions for that patient that need to have that awareness as well. It is not just the clinics or the inpatients, even the radiology techs, they need to know. And how do you create that awareness? Because some of our systems don't connect. And so we Mm. need to work on those pieces. For people who are early on in, in, in beginning to develop these systems, is there a resource outside of Mayo Clinic that you are aware of that they can turn to, or, or have you found that that's difficult to come by? I would say that truly and honestly, workplace violence, mitigation prevention has a wealth of research articles, but it doesn't have a direction and where to go on how to create these pieces. We're kind of on the new realm of this piece, right? And so we're, we're create, we're boundary breaking, I guess. Forging new paths. Before we close our podcast, Elise, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners about this? The perception of violence when we speak of it is that very much, especially from the leadership levels, it's very much a concern of staff implementing consequences upon patients and being biased towards the patients and being in those pieces. But I also want to have leadership to have an awareness for it is the patients targeting are diverse staff members, and they are experiencing incredible amounts of violence, especially since COVID has occurred. And we really need to support our diverse colleagues to really help them in this realm. They are getting the brunt of patient violence specifically. Mm. Yeah, boy. You know, I just want to again reiterate my thanks to you for, first of all, for the passion you brought to this podcast. It's uh, infectious and inspiring, and thank you so much. And for the the specifics and the outcomes of the work that you and your you know your team members and coworkers are having on our, how we can deliver care at Mayo Clinic more safely. I know it's good for the staff. I am one of the staff. I know it's good for the patients. And it sounds like you get a lot of personal satisfaction out of the work that you do as well. Absolutely, I can't. I can't hide the passion. <laughs> no, you no, can't. please don't. No, you can't. Yeah. And please don't yeah. ever do that. Yeah. So we do have to draw to a close. But thank you again so much. We've come to the end of our podcast. We're glad you could join us and hope that the information has been insightful and valuable. I'm sure it has been. Again, Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality podcast. 
aims to help you take some of those first steps to address important quality challenges in your organization. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for patients and the populations that we all serve. Please let others in your organization know about this podcast so the information can be spread and share your ideas about this podcast back to us so we can continue to serve you and improve our podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.